A lot of you remember last week that Boots Nolan was here, and during the question and answer time, Boots kind of asked a question about just how much can you look uh, at, at, a, at a woman, kind of, so to speak. And um, I was harking back to a couple of stories, and these are all true, and that is that uh, there was a, a, a Sunday morning, I, I shouldn't say Sunday, that part I can't guarantee, but I was at Bubba's over in Snyder Plaza. And I was having breakfast, and there was a dad with three daughters in there, and it was Boots Nolan. Now, I'm not sure how old Boots' daughters are today, but it wasn't long after that that I became a dad of three daughters. And my daughters today are 26, 29, and 31. And so you can tell how long ago that was. And so I'd always admired Boots, and I, and I thought last week when his question, when he asked the question, it's like, Boots, you know the answer to that. We don't want anybody looking at our girls uh, in the way that you're talking about. And then sure enough, uh, I would, had been at a, uh, waiting on my car to get fixed, and so I went in and was waiting at a Chick-fil-A. And so when I was in there, when I was going through the line, there was about four gentlemen that I could hear their kind of bantering back and forth, and I thought, you know, I'm going to go sit down by those World War II guys and just listen to what they have to say, because it was pretty humorous as I was listening to it at the, at the table, or as they were sitting at the table. When I sat down next to them, a little bit later, I heard one of the men say to him, he goes, you know what, you never rape a woman. You never rape a woman. He goes, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And he says, but you sure can look at them. And he says, take a look at that girl out there. And they begin to in all honesty, practically undressed a woman right there. And I thought, there's no difference in the eyes of a holy God. That they may be well standing in front of the court of criminal appeals today or whatever, but before a holy God, they're, they're no different. Now, the scary part of the story was, I'm 61 years old. One of the men says, he says, shoot, next year I'm going to be 70. And I thought, you're not a World War II veteran? I was looking at this guy, and he looked like somebody that I wasn't. And all of a sudden, I realized that I had the potential to be a whole lot closer to this guy than what I thought. Fellas, today, James is going to take us down a path that I hope our ears will be especially attuned to what the Lord has in store for us. This isn't about somebody else. This is about us. This isn't about wanting to try to figure out you know, how I can kind of dance my way around this particular passage. This particular passage, I believe, cuts us to the heart. Now, I've, I've been faithful because I issued the challenge to you all to really spend time in this passage every single day. I wished I could tell you I had it memorized. Again, I'll say at 61, it's a whole lot harder for me to remember things than it was at 31. So for those of you that are a lot younger, get it now. Memorize it now, um, because there are parts of this that I think will help shape your thinking and your way that you deal with life uh, for decades to come. James, come on up and bring, bring the word to us. And let me just say again, Father, we thank you for James, and thank you for the giftedness, thank you for the heart, and we just commit him to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pat. And I can tell you at 32, it doesn't get any easier to memorize scripture, so 
tell your children when they're 15. I just want to kick the can down the road into children's ministry for memorizing scripture. Uh, it's a privilege to be with you today. My name is James Madden. I am the campus minister with Reformed University Fellowship at SMU. I uh, just finished my fourth year there and was here a couple years ago, and I'm delighted to be back here with you. I'm going to read our text, and then we are going to talk about the boastful bride of life. This is from the book of 1 John, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's the word of God. It's not very uh, often that you get to slide into a, a speaking situation where you have Pat and uh, last week Vincent Parker set the table so beautifully. So I'm indebted to them to be able to follow them. Uh, we're spending six weeks in the summer uncovering the desires of our heart. And the past two weeks, if you missed the previous two weeks, I would encourage you to go listen to the talks on the website because they were convicting and illuminating, and there was a real degree and depth of honesty there. And the depth of honesty touched upon the deepest realities of what's going on inside of our heart. And particularly last week, what I thought that Reverend Parker did was he talked about the, the, the intense desire that lust can have upon us. And so they've been very internal. And I, I don't want to take that lightly because we're, we're dealing with the, the deepest and most intimate things about us. And so if you're here, I'm glad that you're here. The first two weeks we dealt with the things about us that we don't like talking about externally. They are the things that we think about. It's our internal monologue. And so this week, we are going to talk about that internal desire, but we're going to sort of enter in uh, through the other way because the pride of life, the boastful pride of life, as we'll see, is it's externally manifested. It's different from the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes because I may never see those things in you. Perhaps they'll manifest themselves eventually, but the boastful pride of life is inevitably external. It involves a sort of communication. There's a, a social component to where it shows up on our surface. It's the type of thing that we wear as badges and materials and social situations. And I think it's something... It, it goes deep into the heart of what we are trying to present as men. Uh, I don't know if any of you have gone to Texas Motor Speedway before. Um, I had my first experience on Friday night. I'm convinced that anthropologists, when they come to study Texas in the year 2018, they'll spend the fall at high school football games and then the spring and summer wondering, when they're not waiting for high school, they go to Texas Motor Speedway. And they do that because every Friday night in the summer, they have what are called drag races. And these aren't drag races that have uh, NASCAR or the big rocket engines on the back. These are drag races that you and I can participate in. And anybody can sign up 
And I was shocked at the thousands of people who went and showed up at this, and they had races every five to six seconds for hours and driving about a quarter of a mile, and the people just, just going crazy. My favorite in particular was a souped-up minivan. <laughs> and immediately, he was the crowd favorite. He almost won. He almost won. And I was with a, a group of friends, and one in particular, and this was so right and so true, and he said, James, I don't know what it is, but there's something about when you got your hands on the wheel and you just feel the gurgling underneath the hood. I love that. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. I don't know if you've ever ridden in a fast car before or something with just power. It's the kind of thing that makes us just say, yes, I, I want that. Whatever that is, I love that. It's the gurgling underneath the hood. It's watching a big piece of metal go really, really fast, really, really loudly from here to here and just saying, that's awesome. I want that. And there's something about that. I, I think, it's, guys, it's just great. I just love it. And I think we should celebrate it. There's something about this joy of life that we're just saying, yes, that's great. But then something can begin to happen in that sort of joy of life and the joy of just something awesome and powerful. And it can begin to transfer into my and your hearts. Such that this way, I want to use this illustration. In the same way that the sun gives off a shadow and we're reminded that there's something much bigger than us that shines light upon us and casts a shadow, when I start feeling powerful and like I've got it all together, I start to think that I'm the sun. And I start to think that I have no shadow and that everything around me shines and exists for me. The boastful pride of life is the external manifestation of an internal and deep desire that has me and you on the throne of the universe saying, I am king. That's very, very dangerous. Uh, I have a friend who told me a story the other day. I couldn't believe it, but it is true. I trust her. And she wanted to just love a family while I was mentoring a daughter. And she said, not quickly into the conversation with the father and the family, he looked at her and he said, do you want to know how I made all my money? And to her credit, she said, no, not really. <laughs> Good for her. There's something external that makes me want to go and say, I've got this thing that I want all of you to be able to see. What is that? That is what the Apostle John is trying to get at us. What is the boastful pride of life? I want to break it down because we've got two sessions of this, so you can really dig in. It's not very often that I get to spend a whole hour talking about two words. We're not going for an hour today. That's next time. <laughs> the boastful pride, the Greek word alexonia, not that you care about the pronunciation, but I want you to know that it is legitimate. Uh, it only shows up one other time within the New Testament. It shows up in the book of James, chapter 4. And it has to do, in James, in that context, 
talks about it, this vain, unsubstantiated boasting about something that you have no real control over, namely whether or not you're going to live or die tomorrow. It's the sort of arrogant confidence and the brashness that we all look at, and when we see it on its face, we say, ooh, that's ugly. I don't really like that. Actually, if you look in the Old Testament, there is no direct word for it, but if you look up words like haughtiness, being haughty or prideful or anything of this, this is a really interesting sort of feature of this word, and it always has the idea of height attached to it. Height, here's what I mean. Meaning, the person who is prideful or boastful is always sitting on high and raised above everybody else. When you think about the boastfulness and the pride of life, I want you to imagine yourself as holding court, as if to say, we're all sitting together in this room, and your chair is just a little bit higher, and you can see the tops of everybody else's heads. And that gives you a privileged position of whether or not to decide how much better you are than that other person. The other key word attached to it is unjustified. It's unjustified. After all, who, who made that be the case? Second word, bios. What does bios mean? Well, it just calls it life in the ESV translation. I actually like the NIV much, much better because it's much, much ho more holistic. What it says in the NIV, instead of saying the boastful pride of life, it would say the pride of what we have and do. Of what we have and do. Do you see how that's different? It's not just the fact that we're alive and breathing and have a pulse. It has everything to do with the vocation that you have, the personality that you have, the networks that you're a part of, the material possessions that you have. It's an entire state of affairs that says your bios. And it does show up in other places in scripture. Another place it shows up is Jesus in talking about a widow in the temple. And it says that he, she gave generously out of her bios of what she had to live on, the thing that could sustain her into a pot. In the book of Luke chapter 15, you know the prodigal son parable. It says that the father and the prodigal son divided up his bios, his property, the thing that gave him existence and life, and he distributed it and gave it to his son as an early inheritance. So it's much, much more than just a sense of vitality. It is the holistic picture of everything that you have. If I could say it another way, um, it has to be much, much more than money. It has to be. I'll tell you right now that sitting within this room, I would, if you were to offer me $100,000 in cash or access to your Rolodex, I want your Rolodex. That's what I'm talking about. It's an entire picture of social capital. It's in the, the musical Hamilton, where they're talking about the room where all the deals happen that we all want inside of that room, that whole picture is bios. And when I and you get this unjustified pride in whatever it is I have in that, and those two things come together, it can become extraordinarily dangerous.
perilous even to your soul. So why is the boastful pride of life so heinous, especially compared with the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes? It's a little bit uglier to talk about the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and we're a little more reluctant to talk about it, but John Piper is actually really helpful in describing this. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, both have to do with things that we don't have, that we want. So a desire of the flesh could have anything to do with a a luxury and a comfort. A desire of the eyes might have to do with a covetousness, maybe even an idea of sexual illicitness and desire. It's out there. It's out there. The boastful pride of life says, no, 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 I don't need that stuff out there. I've already got it in here. I don't need it. I'm fine. You can see how that's much, much more dangerous because the essence of the gospel and in Christianity is the idea of I don't have what I need. And what I need is is life from a loving God, and I need to be rescued and saved. See, that's the essence of the gospel is God coming down and saving us. So what happens with the person who says, I want these things outside of me, they're actually much more positioned to receive this gift of life from God because they're looking outside themselves. But for you and I, if I get caught up in the boastful pride of life, I stop looking out there. And I think I look around, I take stock in what I have and who I am, and I say, I think I'm good. You see how one of those is actually far more open to the gospel, whereas the other is entirely closed off? Extraordinarily dangerous. I I know this because um, being in pastoral ministry, this this doesn't just show up in the business world. It shows up in pastoral ministry, too. When I uh, was in seminary, I had this desire. I hated the idea of being poor and being really dependent. I just, uh, I still kind of hate it. Let's, let's be honest. I don't like it. And I was in school, and I thought, well, I'm just going to, I'll just do what everybody in seminary does. I'll go, and I'll be a full-time student. But, oh, by the way, I, I want to be financially independent, too. And I don't know where I came up with this idea, but I thought, I'm just going to start a window washing and pressure washing company at the same time. Because why not? Because I can. Can you see the boastful pride already? And I thought, well, rather than just having a sort of hourly wage, what if I was a boss who could employ my seminary friends while I took a full load in school? That way, and I kid you not, I had this vision of myself that said, I'm going to, after a couple of years, be able to make $100,000 and be a full-time student and just be good. Now, some of you may laugh at $100,000, but to me, it was like, that's good. I've made it. And that was my picture. And as I followed that desire in that picture, what it did was more and more as I was saying to God, I don't need you. I'm fine. I'm fine. I can take care of myself. I can even provide for other people. Look at me. I can be in seminary. That is, 
the essence of where you're supposed to go to pour your life away, to not care about that. And I was thinking about it. I was gaming that system, trying to figure out how can I be independent from any sort of outside need. And it begins to show myself within the way I talk about myself. So in school, it's like, yeah, I'm a student, but you know, I've got this little gig on the side. It pays the bills. It's fine. This sort of understated confidence, this unjustified bias, the boastful pride. Can you just see it just start to ooze out there? And by God's grace, he just completely smashed any desire I had for running a business and led me away from that and humbled me through a series of painful experiences that we don't have time to talk about. But none of us are immune to it. None of us. But it does creep in, doesn't it? It's so, so subtle. You look in my circumstance, the seminary kid. Oh, look at him, look at him. He's doing great. He's going to seminary. All of you going to make profit. He's going to give his life away. You know, it's just this, we can give ourselves these, these cuts and these breaks. And so I want to talk about four different ways the boastful pride of life, the unjustified confidence in what we have and do, can creep in to yours and my heart. Because it's very important to see that these show up in very, very subtle ways. The first way that I want to call is corrupted wisdom and success. Corrupted wisdom and success. The book of Proverbs outlines a series of ways of if you do this, good things will happen. If you don't do this, let me say, if you do this, good things will happen. If you do that, bad things will happen. And it's a general illustration of this is the way that God has made the world and his wisdom. And if you align yourself to that and behave accordingly and do certain things, it will more likely than not go well for you. That's the wisdom of the Proverbs. Well, what happens when we begin to do everything right, you and I? You stayed in that extra night and studied. You spent the extra hour on your presentation. You made the extra phone call that nobody else was willing to make. You were the one who did what other people weren't willing to do. You followed the rules, and it worked out. It's worked out. You've gotten more, more than you could have imagined, or you've gotten enough. And over time, that settling in of, oh, I've gotten everything that I need, I must be doing pretty well. The book of Ezekiel, chapter 28, talks about the king of, I believe it's the king of Tyre. And it's really interesting if you go back and read it, but this specific king was raised, it says, in righteousness and was beautiful. And over the course of time, he became so successful that the text says, and I love this, this is the best nugget, is that he exchanged wisdom for splendor. Wisdom for splendor. It is so very possible to be doing everything right, and before you know it, I've switched. You see how quickly it can happen. And you're doing it all right. Next thing, innocuous language. Innocuous language. The way that you and I speak to one another is indicative of what's going on in our heart. Jesus makes that very clear. 
It says, out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks, something to that effect. And so there's a direct relationship between the two. And the way that it works out with you and I is that we have these subtle languages and references whereby we can see with each other where we are in the boastful pride of life. The book of James chapter 4 addresses this. And James actually makes a really, really big deal out of this. It seems like a minor situation, but here's what he makes a big deal out of. The book of James chapter 4, there's a problem, and James is taking certain people to task because they're acting in such a way. They're saying, okay, well, next week I'm just going to move to this other town, and then I'm going to be really, really successful and trade a bunch of goods, and everything's going to go well with me. Those are the types of things that they're saying. Just, I'm going to plan on doing this. And James looks at him and he says, no, 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 no. What you need to consider is, is that at the front of that, you should say, if the Lord wills it, I will go to this and this and place and this and this will happen. Can you see the difference? One of them has complete and total confidence in our own abilities in our own bios, that if I do this, this will happen, and I'm in control. I am king. The other one is entirely dependent upon a king in whom every single second of our lives we have our dependence. Every single thing we have, every breath we take, we are living in constant dependence upon the mercy and kindness of God in material provisions, familial, emotional, and certainly spiritually in terms of being saved by Jesus. This can get even more subtle. There's a Russian guy named Mikhail Bakhtin. I don't know if you remember that name. But what he talks about is how when we use, yeah, that's a, that's a memorable name, isn't it? Yeah, that's going to be on the test and multiple choice. So look for the Russian name. Um, now, and what he talks about, and this gets even more crazy, is he talks about sometimes we speak in different voices. So I can be saying the exact same thing to you and mean entirely different things. This is how twisted our hearts can become. Let me give you an example. Now, I love going to Colorado. I love it. In the summertime especially, and winter. I love to ski. I love the summer. I just, I love it. I'm a stereotypical Texan. And there's a way of saying, if you say, what are you doing, James? And I could say, oh, I'm going to Colorado. Or you could say, well, James, what are you doing? Oh, well, you know, going to Colorado. You hear the difference? One of them is sort of a, eh, of course I am. It's easy. Of course I should. The other one is just matter of fact stating what you're going to be doing. It seeps into every aspect of our hearts. I think we need to be attuned to it. Point three, it's what we're aiming for. Nobody would genuinely stand up here, I don't think, and say, what I'm looking for is to be the kind of person who has an unjustified amount of pride in my bios. Nobody's going to say that. Nobody's going to explicitly say that. And yet, there's a dimension and a trajectory that most of our lives, and I'll throw myself in this, can put ourselves in. And it's the trajectory that I think is personified in the book of Luke chapter 12. And it's a parable. And Jesus says... He tells a parable about a very successful man, and this sort of man has done very well. He's a farmer. He's done very well. And he's got so much abundance and produce and profit that 
he just says, I need to build more barns. Things are really, really good. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to just build more barns, store up all my stuff, and then I'm just going to kind of kick it and take it easy for the rest of my life. And, of course, the parable ends, and he says, what are you doing? Your life may end today. But within that, do you, do you see the trajectory that is so pernicious? We're all thinking about this. In a sense, it's very wise and good to be thinking about what is going to happen in 30 years, 40 years. But this trajectory of I have to get to a place where I have this, this station of life of what I have and do to where I'm entirely self-sufficient and independent, it entirely alienates us from God. The material things have nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with the desires of my heart attaching to that thing and saying, okay, I'm good. Last thing, the cumulative effect of all of these is that it produces a heart and maybe even senses that are just desensitized. You and I, our eyes and our ears, the more and more I and you become wrapped up in this boastful pride of life, the less that we're able to hear and see the kingdom of God at work, the needs there are surrounding us, we enter into, it, it becomes self-fulfilling. We enter into our own protected domain, completely isolated and disconnected from everyone around us. Because you and I, we, we all need relationships. Most of all, we need a relationship and eternal life in God, but we also need love from each other. And there's a lot of other people around us who have a lot of needs. And the more and more this can happen, the scriptures, especially the Proverbs, is amazing at talking about this. It talks about the pridefulness and the haughtiness of our heart and how it just begins to obstruct our view of life. A lot of times it can lead to our own downfall. So what do we do in light of this? I think we go back to the text. Um, verse 15, don't love the world or the things in the world. Like, well, thanks. Duh. <laughs> it's not very helpful, is it? You ever get that advice when somebody says, well, just stop thinking about that. And you say, don't think about the pink bunny. It's like, well, thanks a lot. Now all I can think about is the pink bunny. So thankfully, John gives us a little bit more than that. In verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. There's a certain kind of uh, negative command or a negative reality, I'll call it. The world's passing away and along with its desires. And it's not a bad thing to meditate upon the futility of our circumstance. Not to dwell on it, not to become morbid about it, but just to take stock and the reality that this is all passing away. Think about the most impressive, successful, incredible businessman 40 years older than you, and 50, and 60, and then we realize they're not here anymore. It's just, it's, it's going away. John is telling us these desires, they, they don't last. And so as enticing as they can become, and they are enticing, as much security as they can provide, which they provide a ton, as much as it makes me 
feel and in a way act temporarily independent or think I'm independent from God, it's still, it's as if it's on an eroding shoreline. And over time, the waves are going to crash in and more and more the foundation is just going to fall away. There's a positive side to that, and John calls it doing the will of God. Doing the will of God. Now, what, what does John mean in that? Because that's a pretty generic statement. Well, within the context of 1 John, it has something like this. It has to do with abiding in God's love and believing in the name and the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ for your eternal life. When I say believe, I'm not talking about a cognitive belief, but an entire giving yourself over to the reality, your bios, giving your bios over to the reality that even though you will fade away, you are found in an eternal one and you will live forever. And then the secondary part of that, of what it means to do the will of God, is to, it says, love the brothers. Love the brothers. Love the brothers. The book of 1 John, John chapter 3 talks about that in many ways the love of the brothers is to look around and see the absence and need and to fill it with our bios. Love is undeserved. It's a sense of looking around you and saying, they messed that up and they don't deserve help. That's who I want to go towards. That's what John presents to us as an answer. I believe that it's firmly rooted in the reality of the gospel, that we've been loved and given life, saved out of futility so that we could then pour out. Actually, next week, my title's terrible. It's from Bios to Zoe, which, like, what does that mean? It sounds like Klingon or something. But we're moving from the land of being perishable life to eternal life, Zoe. And so the next week, what we're going to do, two weeks from now, is talk about how is it that we begin living and, 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 and getting into more and more the stream of the life of God for eternity so that we can be free from the boastful pride of life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, you're so good and kind and gracious. Thank you for not um, looking at us the way that we deserve to be uh, looked at, but instead looking at us with love and compassion and a willingness to move into our sphere, our bios, what we say and do, to become like us, that you might save us, that we might have eternal life with you. I pray that you would bless these conversations and questions and that they would be pleasing in your sight and lead to your glory and the good of everyone here. You're going to let me pray. Amen. Okay, so if you look on the back of your sheet, there are a list of four or five questions to help direct you, but feel free to look at the outline as well. Thank you.